I gotta, I gotta, I gotta finish up this smoothie so I'm not still Bro, talking about it. Kale smoothie. <laughs> so it's not kale. obvious. We're recording this back to back. So we're recording this back to back. You gotta pretend it's a new day. All yeah. right. It's new cool. Day. All right. Welcome to Till We Feast, where three pastor friends doing ministry in Washington, D.C. wrestle with questions around how the church can be a foretaste of the Feast of God. I'm Glenn Hoberg, one of the hosts of this podcast, and I'm joined in the studio by Pastor Duke Kwan and Pastor Russ Whitfield. How are you, my brothers? Hey, hey. What's happening? Good to be back in the studio together. It is, man. Because I got a good question. Already jumping right. You, I'm, I don't care wait. about how y'all doing today. Can't I need wait. I need some You're answers. Like, yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> so all right. Yeah. Here's a question I want to ask y'all. Mm. Because I, you know, I've been I've been thinking about this a lot because I'm finding myself in some some fresh territory. Fresh territory. In terms of ministry okay. demands. Mm-hmm. Okay. And I'm I'm reminded of a question. Mm. And I would love to hear y'all reflect on this. I want to ask y'all. Um, what did your ministry training fail to prepare you for? Mm. And how did you discover the gap between your training and the demands of your ministry? And, and how have you tried to overcome those gaps? So what wow. are the gaps between your, your theological or biblical or ministry training? How did you discover those gaps in the process of ministry? And what have you done to kind of close the gap between your I guess I would say your skill set and the demands of your ministry. Yeah. Well, a, you know how you find really out good. that there's a gap is you get your butt kicked. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Yes. You start wondering why you're so tired. Yes. Right? You know. That's definitely one of them. Yeah. I'll, I'll tell you what comes to mind first for me. Mm. Immediately, immediately to me. What's come coming to your mind immediately? Is leadership. When I was going through seminary, uh, very little. Uh, so if you become a pastor of a local church, or just a ministry leader, you're a leader. Mm-hmm. You're a leader. But leadership's its own thing, right? And so uh, it used to be that the best pastor leaders were guys that just weathered it for 30 years and learned through you know bumps and bruises and had some wisdom at the end. So when I was going through seminary, there wasn't a whole lot taught on, you're going to be a leader of an organization. And as we've talked about before, a weird organization, kind of like a family business. Yeah. Very complex organization. Didn't have training on that. How did I figure that out? Uh, When people looked at me and said, I don't feel like this organization is working. They didn't say it that way. Yeah. They just like, you know. Yeah. Or mostly conflict, I think, was really... A good one. We 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 can unpack this. I can unpack it. I will say that now, twenty years later, because early on in my ministry, outside of seminary, I got into a cohort that thought a lot about leadership, and it put it on my radar. Right now, there's a lot more about leadership. There is, and I've even wondered. And you guys have heard me say this: Are we as a pastor? so focused on the leadership thing, which sometimes can become the management thing, Mm. that the word and prayer, there are many times I feel more like a leader than I do a pastor. 
And I know I'm I'm pastoring through leading yeah. and leading through pastoring, yeah. but you know what I mean. If this vision that I was going to be, I'm a teaching elder, mm. teaching the word a lot. I was going to be discipling with the word a lot, prayer. I think I do a lot more leading of an organization. That's a different can of worms, but I would say that's the first thing that came to mind for me. That's mm. good. You know, and that's yeah. the first thing that comes to my mind too, Glenn. And, and I agree with you right now. Maybe the pendulum has swung in this day and age because we've been in ministry for so long, right? Yeah. That maybe yeah. the pendulum is, and it's shifted a little bit. But I, I think I'm thinking leadership of a certain kind. I mean, it's really important. You know, the way we kind of assume that a pastor knows how to lead a good meeting. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, this right. is kind of basic kind of stuff. Yeah. But just how to be effective in a meeting set. And that's a lot of common grace, wisdom and knowledge and skills and know-how that you kind of have to pick up. Mm. And again, I'm not presuming that what we're talking about necessarily is what needs to be taught in seminary, in the classroom setting. It could be taught in training can happen in a number of different ways, sources. But I think some of that basic stuff is important, right? You know, how do you lead a meeting? How do you communicate effectively? What do you need to say in such and such a situation, whether if it's in a pastoral or a, a church crisis kind of situation, so crisis management, or if it's just in announcing a new event, right? Like what needs to be said? Who needs to hear it? Who's the audience that you need to have in your mind? Some of that basic kind of stuff, but I agree with you, conflict Resolute. I mean, sometimes in pastoral ministry, that's like the bulk of what you do. Do you know how to sit down? And whether if it's brokering conflict, being a referee in the community, or if it's in you managing conflict yourself between people in the church or people in the leadership or people in yourself, right? That kind and yeah. those are all leadership. Those are all dimensions of, of leadership. How, how do you guide people through those uh, kinds of things? Yeah, I, I, I don't feel like I got a lot of that. Over time, and I think it's partly because the sort of our tradition and where we are, there's sort of this assumption that you're called to preach the gospel, so you preach and you teach, and if you just do it, everything will fall in place. It's like just mm. preach good news, right. you know, effectively preach scripture, and it's almost as if helping people to move from, you know, immaturity to maturity just kind of will happen. Or, you know, the rollout of a certain program or initiative in a church, they will just follow just by by the sheer virtue of their appetite for the things of God, right? right. <laughs> and it's like leadership just happens. Mm. And we know that's not true. I think, Duke, I love how practically you put that about how do you lead a meeting? Like you do that right. a lot. And I was thinking about one of the first membership seminars I ever led for the church when we planted. And uh, I did a typical pastor thing, man. Mm. We started in the morning. I had my notes. <laughs> I think we stopped for lunch. We just kept going. <laughs> going. Afterward, yeah. this woman who, you know, professional woman who'd done this for years, she said, uh, you might want to consider giving people some breaks <laughs> or letting people sort of get into groups and talk about things like that. And I was thinking, listen, I got biblical precedent for what I'm doing. Paul had <laughs> someone fall out a window. Paul just kept talking. The guy fell out the window. That That's was right. all right. That's so hilarious. yeah, you were doing it wrong because you didn't kill nobody. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> but just basic stuff like that. 
And because this job is, I again, refer to that article I read a couple of weeks ago. It was this guy that was just sort of saying, this is all the things that pastors do and mostly negative. But mm. one of the phrases he said is a pastor has to be a master of ceremonies. Mm. And you're sort of like, yeah, you do a wedding. I remember the first wedding I apprenticed at and the, you stepped up and said, yo, 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 this is MC Glenn <laughs> in the house. <laughs> Man, the, D, yeah, the right. DJ was surprised when I said, slide over, the pastor's here. <laughs> but man, the first, the first uh, wedding apprentice, this pastor... Man, he was half pastor, half wedding coordinator. Right. Mm-hmm. He was saying, "Okay, guys, you're gonna hold your hands behind your back uh, here. Are you know you're gonna move here." And you, he was telling even the bride's mother, "This is where you're gonna go." Mm-hmm. So there's all these different sides of what you get called into that you're like, you know, how do I do this? Yeah. Right? Yeah. And and let me add real quick too, when I talk about the importance of getting training in leadership, I am talking about a vision of leadership that can be expressed in a wide range of personalities, right? Because I think Mm -hmm. sometimes even the training that is out there for leadership assumes, I'm just thinking about your DJ thing, right? (laughs) Or a master of ceremony thing, right? What we don't, I don't think, have in mind is the need for training of a certain mold of leadership, right? A certain kind, the extroverted, charismatic, upfront guy, because that's not going to be every minister and every trainer or every ministry leader, but even that kind of flexibility and an adaptable sort of model of training leadership, that wasn't something that I got very much of either. Mm. Right. Mm. In context too, and I want to hear Russ in this because both of you all, both of you all started, I got the privilege of watching you enter (laughs) ministry (laughs) and just, you know, the the beautiful unfolding of what's happened, but Mm. even our context had limits. So for instance, Meg, we just had a family funeral. Mm-hmm. We're at this church and talking to this pastor about his world and mine. Uh, maybe two, three funerals in 20 years of our congregants, right? Everybody's yeah. young, single in DC. Right. And so even that, like, you don't get a lot of leadership training. How do you approach a hospital room? Right. How do you approach a family in a hospital room? How do you how do you approach a blended family in a hospital room? You know, just lots of stuff like that. That I and again, it's not a gripe session, but we're just beginning to think about all the things you got to learn on the fly. Anyway, Russ. Yeah, I don't know if we're drifting from what. No, you've- this is it's really helpful just to hear some of the things that occur to y'all as like gaps in your training, mm. because I, I mean, I think it's very clear, all three of us very much value and appreciate the work of seminaries. Mm-hmm. Yes. And we're all grateful for our friends. Like, I mean, we all, you know, have taught in a seminary, uh, shout out, much love, RTS Washington, boop, boop. Mm-hmm. Covenant uh, Seminary too. Covenant Seminary. Gordon Conwell. Gordon Conwell. I was talking about the institution we serve. Right. You oh. know, and so. RTS. Yeah. And so, I, you know, we have immense value for that. And they have a very difficult job. Like, how do you fit everything you can in, in the space of two or three years, right? Like, I get that. And some people's training is actually not in seminary. It was through some kind of apprenticeship. Others, it's, you know, they're leaders in their local church and they're being equipped by their local church leaders who are going to pull on the fact they were trained in a seminary, most Mm -hmm. likely, Mm -hmm. and use those resources to try and equip their leaders. So listening to the way y'all process is helpful and affirming because I've felt, I have felt everything that you just said. I'm like, yep, yep, yep. I remember that, you know, Robert's rules 
first off, who's Robert and why he get to make the rules, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, so, uh, so I had that. But I've also felt like, you know, as I look back over, I'm like, man, I wish someone would have prepared me for the difficulty of ministry and what it looks like to remain a healthy pastor, a healthy Christian as you face all of the That's the good. challenges, like trying to weather that stuff. You because, mean like the inner life of a pastor? That yeah, kind of thing? yeah, like, yeah, like yeah. your own soul care, yeah. like, you know, and, yeah. and because that's the one, it's very easy to neglect that and to justify it. I mean, I got to study for this sermon and I'm focused on how to apply the word to them, not so much about my own life with Christ, right? And so, you know, feeling that, then you have these unexpected things that like, oh yeah, we're trying to buy a building right now. Like leading through that or just even processing that is like- You're like, where was my capital campaign workshop? You know what I'm saying? Look, I'm still mad I didn't get a global pandemic class. Where was that? But it's like unprecedented times. Like mm. I wish we had, you know, this is obviously retrospect. We, you know, when we were in seminary, we may not have been able to anticipate the political turmoil that would unfold in our country nor I'm right. sure did we expect that we would be in Washington, D.C., having to navigate election years and all that kind of stuff. Right. And so right. I wish I had some more training about how to negotiate. We got good biblical theological training on mission mm. in the theoretical. In a theological. In right. a theological way, right, right? right? But in terms of how local mission is worked out in a particular place with a particular people, that felt like a gap. And even what you just described in terms of politics or public issue, it's it's almost like the banner is the public pastor, right? How, how do you conduct yourself? How do you speak into things? How do you shepherd a flock in light of public life and public issues and the challenges of the church in the world, kind of that dimension? Of, I mean, it's a partly a leadership thing, super um, but there's more in there too. So private pastor, public pastor, you know, like that. that's really good, Duke. I also... I, the way I describe the transition into the cross-cultural, for me, I am grateful that at Westminster, I got some rich theological, biblical theological resources for doing the general work of ministry, like for understanding scripture, for understanding church history and these kinds of things, right? But I always describe my experience as a sort of double translation work. Oh, I have yeah. to not only translate it right. from the academy to the church and my, all of our peers have to do that, right? Like every pastor has to do that who goes to seminary. They have to translate from the academy to the common people. Right. But in seminary, what was given to me was a, a completely homogeneous teaching of the faith, right? And right. very, very, very located in tradition. And so I had not only had to translate from the academy to the pew, I had to translate from a Eurocentric world into a cross-cultural world, a more diverse world. So it's like a double translation right. work. And that I had to figure out That's right. on my own. Right. Like, how do you begin to see through the lenses of others? what are the resources that are out there and how do you go find them? Right. That's like, right. right. And, that, the and there's a lot more resources now than there were 10, 15, 20, 30 years ago. Yes, right. And so, yes. yeah, there wasn't much. No. And so those are gaps that, but I, I will say this, I will say this. I believe that 
if engaged in the right way. And when those gaps are engaged in the right way, you end up becoming stronger and more healthy on the other end of having to put that work in yourself. So I got the, I got certain theological tools mm-hmm. and I just didn't get the, the fruit that was given. I was given the tools. So I was like, but I was not given the fruit. And so mm. I had to go out and like till the ground. Mm. I had to go out, find seed, then plant the seed and then cultivate and wait for yeah. it to grow up and protect that, you know, fragile plant until it could bear fruit. If that makes sense. Yeah. It's just, that's one of the reasons why it just takes so much longer. That's right. On the cross-cultural front. That's right. We talked about that, right? Yeah, we did talk about you that. You know, one thing that you said earlier about the inner life of the pastor and, and, and wishing that we had more training on that. You know, what's interesting is I think about that. I think even if I had gotten that, and even if mentors or seminary instructors or classes were addressing that more fully, I don't know that I would have at that time in that season of training had the maturity to receive it. <laughs> I know, yeah. It's true. It's true. Because even as a church planter, everyone does talk about, you know, you need to take care of yourself. You need Sabbath is key and your prayer. I mean, everyone addresses it, but I don't think you ever really learn the lesson except in real time and sometimes through failure that, you know, you talked about the gap. It's sort of like, well, some of that is just getting walloped by things being hard or you crashing or you, you know, your lack of, inner flourishing impacts your ministry or your family or yourself and whatever. It's almost like that's the only way to actually get trained up on some of these things that look, you got to spend time with Jesus. You, your, yeah. your communion with God is the most important thing that you have to offer your people, right. As a minister. And that, that lesson, you can believe it in theory up on the front end of things, but you don't really get it. And you don't really form that commitment to it. I don't know. Maybe I'm maybe, maybe I'm overstating that. No, but that you know, it's, so it's just this interesting thing about there are gaps, but there are some things that just need to get trained and learned in real time. Mm. Yeah. Sometimes it's semi, yeah yeah it's not and it's and that's important what you just said. It's not fair. We some at some level we have to we have to wrangle with the expectations that we bring to theological training and not expect it to be the sum total end all be all. And I think that's where, that's the only way they could continue to do their right. work is if they know we can't be exhaustive. We can't do it all. Right. A couple, a couple things came to mind as you guys were unfolding this idea. One was, I did think about mentorship in the sense that Jesus spent three years with these guys. Now yep. we have his teaching, but think about that, right? Mm-hmm. Like all the time, all the time, because uh, the, Maybe in some traditions in training, you're getting that. Not so much our tradition tends to be more academic. So not like I am like under this person. And maybe I know seminaries, again, total sympathy for seminaries. They're not, ultimately, they're not the ones that are supposed to vet or do anything. But even before you send someone to seminary, is there some sort of idea like for three years, you have had to been like under the shadow of this is, you know, in the shadow of this is what you're going to be doing. And I think that really is not emphasized a whole lot in our tradition. It's not emphasized. It wasn't in mine. The other is, I was thinking, Duke, about that moment. You're a young person and you're not ready to receive it yet. And it's been so good. All of us have had this moment where 
you're finally there, and an older season pastor sort of looks at you and smiles and says, okay, now you understand, mm. which makes me think about leadership community. Yeah, that's right. How important it is to be in a circle where, because gaps are inevitable, right? It's not like I'm, we, you could have the best training in the yeah, world. Yeah, yeah. You can't take it all in. Gaps are inevitable. No one's a complete person. But if I can be in a leadership community that's healthy, you know, I'm going to be and, able... Go ahead. Oh, I cut you off, man. No, I love that idea of leadership community. And I'm thinking not only, right, because the importance of a, a young or mid-season pastor being surrounded by people, you know, that's worth praying for every ministry leader to have around them. I know people crave that. But I also think in that community for you to bear and wear the identity as a trainee, mm-hmm. uh, being a crucial part of that, because I think we graduate people to that, like, go, plant, or go lead, you're a minister without like, you know, to use the Jedi term, you need to be a Padawan for a long time. (laughs) Even when you step onto the field or when maybe even post-ordination, you're still sort of forced to, maybe against your will, a 10-year apprenticeship or something, right? Where you're just, you got a long way to go. And the time horizon that's presented to you is a long one, not a short one. And we're not actually communicating to guys either that they're they're done with training, nor that they're like fully formed and ready to go. It's like, no, you, you're just beginning. So we need you to be under a mentor and you're checking in with them for 10 more years, right? And we're deliberate about that, that kind of learning community. Because I think our self-perception and our self-image is really important in, in this, right? That I have a posture of a, of a learner and I'm under somebody almost submitted to an older, seasoned veteran ministry person, pastor, ministry leader, whoever, for a long, long time before I can go out. I think, and and with these gaps, I was thinking as well, I, I did not, it wasn't until later, things like emotional intelligence, cultural intelligence, and it is somewhat scary because all of us come from different stories. Let's just take emotional intelligence. Right. Mm-hmm. Like the whole idea. Ideally, you could say, well, pastor, just exhibit the fruit of the spirit. That'll take care of it. Ain't that easy. It's not like we graduate and all of a sudden you go through a transformation and you get that. You ain't all that fruity when you come out. <laughs> <laughs> you are. And you just, and that's an embarrassing thing about being a ministry leader is like your sanctification's on display. Right. right? right. You're just kind of in whatever your story is, your family story, how you were fathered, how you weren't fathered, right. how you were, right. all that stuff is still undergoing change. Right. It's a very vulnerable place too. Because people are looking at you mm. and expecting you. And, and that's where I think it gets into the faking stuff. Yeah, like, I'm right. going to cover my gaps because they're not only looking for me to, to give them a theological answer. They're, I, I'm, the, I'm supposed to be the person that doesn't lose their cool mm. mm-hmm. when everybody else is losing their cool. But maybe I came from a family where, like, everybody lost their cool. Mm. It's not easy. Mm-hmm. And, uh, again, I feel like the gaps are inevitable it gets to an earlier conversation we had too of what we understand to be like a mature formed person. Mm-hmm. And cause training ought to be towards right, that end. Toward yeah. that end. Yeah. Right. I got a question. Y'all got me, it, it got me thinking about this. Like when you think about the gaps it, and I'm, and I'm hearing a lot in terms of themes about like, you know, maybe having had the opportunity to be set up better for pastoral ministry. How cultural do you think 
the the perspective on a pastor and what a pastor is and what a pastor does. How cultural do you think that has been in your own formation? And have you ever thought that maybe there are some things that we think are essential to pastoral ministry that simply are not? Hmm. Like I actually heard it. I actually read an article where someone was basically pushing against the idea that the Bible ever talks about pastors as leaders. Mm -hmm. And they were trying to create a distinction between being a leader and being a shepherd, Mm -hmm. which I, you know, I didn't necessarily buy it, but it was interesting. And I just kind of sat with it for a little bit, but like, you know, cultural expectations around pastoring and what that involves or cultural ideas around what leadership is, right? right. Like, how do y'all think about that and bring that into orbit with this whole theory of gaps? Because I, I suspect that some of the gaps are the result of a limited, a culturally limited view of right. the work. right and what it entails and what it should be. What should a pastor be doing? Well, let me throw this in the pot. I mean, one thing uh, that I would have added to our our, our good long list is the, sort of this gap of uh, a, a, a diminished or insufficient understanding of suffering in the context of mm. pastoral ministry. Mm. And like, I don't know. I, I mean, did you guys come in with a, a rich and robust expectation that it's going to hurt? I don't know, right? I um, think mine was a very thin expectation. Like I expected yeah. it was going to be challenging. Yeah. I actually thought that I was going to be broke, yeah. poor for all of ministry because I grew up with a bivocational right. pastor dad. Mm. Um, yeah. And huh. so like that was my right, paradigm. Right, right. And it was like not glitzy. It was yeah, not well right. put together. It was the saints faithfully showing up, right. doing the essential things. Right. So, and, that, and that's part of it, I think, right? Because I would say... You know, and I didn't grow up my whole life in the Korean church, but in our family, there was enough of a Korean church influence mm. kind of that that sort of swirled around. Mm-hmm. Like I very much was raised to assume and expect not just that pastoral ministry contains some suffering, but mm. it is suffering. Yeah. <laughs> okay. yeah. Yeah. Yes. I mean, that's right. sort of a little bit of Korean cultural mm. angst mm. that's just mm. built in sort of writ large mm. in, in Korean culture. You know, I think I've told you guys before my parents, when I first told them that I felt called to pastoral ministry, they wept and flipped out mm. because they did not want wow. what they assumed to be nothing but a life of pain and suffering for their son. Mm. And now you because they had other ambitions. <laughs> yeah. And because they also had some other ambitions for me too, right? That, that longer story, right? How you going to take but, care of us if you broke? <laughs> <laughs> right. And so... Um, so I would say that, right, mm-hmm. in, in terms of that cultural assumption and as I see the contrast with more Western assumptions of what ministry is, a little bit more triumphalistic, a little bit more success and accomplished, achievement-oriented yes. and that sort of thing. Professionalized. So in terms of training, like I would have loved a little more training around not just the expectation, but like how do you bear with and and, and, and sort of absorb or process um, the pains and that sort of thing. Another thing from the Korean shirts that I'll, I'll also mention too is um, seeing how pastors in immigrant churches do all of it, right? I mean, you're not only the preacher, you're also the bus driver, the mm-hmm. van driver. Well, you're picking people up from the airport, right? You're helping them move, yes. right? You kind of do a little bit of everything. And, yes. and one can critique whether or not that should be so, uh-huh. right? But sort of when it comes to training then, it's like, well, you better be ready to do all those things, right? And kind of sort of the assumption that the pastor is only being trained up for preaching and prayer 
full stop, you know, feels a little bit more like, well, a, a, a pastor of a community that's not going to have the regular struggles of the immigrant community that needs a ride or needs English translation or needs practical things to be uh, sort of provided for in the church community. The church community is not just a place of worship. It's community center. It's support systems and all of that. And so you got to be ready to do that. Not necessarily trained up to know how to do it, but you just got to go do it. Same in the black church. (laughs) Make it happen. Because it comes from the impulse that this is an all of life thing. Yeah. And so I need to have an all of life way of engaging right. my people. And, right. you know, for immigrant communities, if you're a pastor of an immigrant community and you see some people in your community who are suffering and they're your sheep, right? you feel compelled to right. do something to serve them and help them. Same thing in the black church. That's why in the black church, there's like this, why was it that it was primarily black clergy that led the civil rights movement? Because they were pastoring a people under some serious right, injustice right. and oppression. That's right. And they felt compelled by the teaching of scripture to rise up and do something about it. So they saw more of that prophetic kind of engagement and priestly responsibility in terms of their shepherding. I, I, I wish, man, it would have been amazing in seminary if they had held up to us different pastoral models, models right? You that's know, good, so right? you could see like, this is a model that comes from suburban America. And not downing it, like, let's draw the benefits out. Let's talk about the liabilities. That's right, a the model. Blessings, yeah. Learn. Right. Here is a model from the immigrant community. Here's a model from the black church. Here's a model from overseas and, yeah, and various places exactly overseas. Right. I feel like that would have helped us to have, I feel like that actually would have addressed a lot of the insufficiencies and bad expectations because all of those different traditions of working out pastoral ministry would have informed the whole of what this thing is. Right. And then would have helped to set your expectations a little more, you know, accurately and may have made, you know, great created more resilience mm. in terms of like the expectations. expectations yeah. Right? I remember, I remember in our tradition, um, it's a thing for people to write hot emails to their pastor, you know, <laughs> like, I, like strong, strongly worded concern, like, or whatever, like fighting you. Right. I remember the first time I got one of those. I remember mm-hmm. it too. And I was, I was like, what is this? I was like, and then I, I shared it with my dad. My dad, it, if I could have captioned <laughs> my dad's head, it would have been all question marks over his head. He was like, Couldn't even process. It, it did not compute yeah. because that is not how people treat their pastor in the black church. Right. They, it's, it's like all honor. Yeah. It's all love and support. And they follow the mm. pastor rather than fighting the mm-hmm. pastor. And that was the paradigm I was raised under. But then I was being trained at, according to a different paradigm, but still no one told me that that stuff was coming. And when that came, I was like, what in the world (laughs) is happening? And I had only been, I ain't been a Christian that long. You know, it's like at at, at that point, I think it was like, I had been a Christian for like a decade Mm. and you know, the Lord saved me from some things. (laughs) And so I was like, I was hot because I felt like the disrespect, it was, it was unreal. I was like, whoa, who talks to their pastor like this? Like who thinks that this okay to try and come in mm-hmm. after you thought about this for five minutes sitting on the couch mm-hmm. and we have devoted like our lives to understanding and growing and knowing in the networks and the, in the research and all that. And it's like, I was just like, wow, that's some serious arrogance and 
Also, just a basic failure of Christian love to just disrespect another person like this. And this is, this is another, another argument for asking, or rather to pose it as a question, I'm thinking back and going, who was in the room training mm. me? Right, right, mm. right. Mm. So mm. are we actually looking for training that's Catholic, cross-cultural, where I'm in that room it rather, as you lifted up that model thing, Russ, and immediately I thought about who is informing me. Yes. If someone is open, thank thank God for the Holy Spirit and is leading. Because if, right. if your heart is open, at the very least, like right now, someone could be listening and they're being like, I'm not in that context at all. I think God hears the desires of the heart. He heard mine mm. 20 years ago when I mm-hmm. prayed, Jesus, send people to me. Yeah. And, you know, he will lead people in your path. Will I have the humility to receive them coming at me mm. from a different ministry model and not dismissing it? Yeah. And, you know, and the, and the way our tradition dismisses it is through sort of like intellectual pride, right? To say, well, you know, you're not doing this or that. And I know there's other traditions that dismiss in different ways. Uh, I'll tell you one area, it just culturally, I've been caught short is I've always felt uncomfortable. I'll have different people. This is one of the things I've learned uh, pastoring in a cross-cultural context, the way people address me, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So it's not like, I'm very comfortable with people going, hey, Glenn, how's it going, man? You know, hi, pastor. And what makes me nervous now on the on the surface, I might say, listen, I, that formality, you know, I, I don't like that. And but really what unnerves me is in some ways they're 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 calling me to an office. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. They're mm. calling me to sort of like even when you, when someone's approached you as a holy man. Mm. Right? Cuz I'm like a man of the cloth. Right. Like like they're and for some of them maybe their context they're coming from is like, yeah, I have great respect for you because I know you might be killed first mm. for your faith, mm. you know? And mm. it's this idea where it's like, I don't want, I don't want that, that responsibility on me. I'd rather be low key. Just call me Glenn. Uh-huh, you know, uh-huh. we're going to hang that way because when you call me pastor, it makes me feel like I got a man up. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, and yeah, there's the danger of like, for me, Maybe the danger could be you relish the title and you get full of pride, but I think it's not so much that. Mm. I think it's like, I want to fly a little bit underneath the radar and not be called to that. Mm. I don't know if that That makes sense. Totally, man. And I feel like part of what we're we're talking about right now is even as we discuss like, how do you train or, you know, gaps in training for ministry, the key question is for what ministry? Right. What is the the picture or the image or the goal of what we <laughs> assume good. the job description of that pastoral office or whatever ministry leader uh, might be training for? That that determines whether you're hitting the target or not. And I think we're saying having a wide range of things that you're exposed to and a wide portfolio of different sort of training items, issues, and whatever is a key key, key thing yeah, right? man. To, to being ready and equipped. 100%. Uh, yeah. This has been a helpful conversation to me. And I kind of feel like I'd be remiss if I didn't say this last piece. It's it, one of the things that we always used to frustrate the folks of color in seminary is that you would never get a professor of color in any department except practical theology. Oh, right? As if we weren't 
capable of doing the real heavy, serious stuff like mm, systematics theology, right. and, you know, right. Bible. Right. And that's one of the things I most appreciate about RTS Washington is that brothers of color are teaching in the, like the primary and in addition to the practical that's theology. Really, and I just, re, it's one of the reasons why I'm, I'm encouraged to, to send folks to RTS Washington and we have such a fruitful partnership with them. So lest anyone think that we're against it, against theological institutions, we're all products of theological institutions and we really value it and appreciate what it has given to us. And I just think it's important to reflect upon like the limitations of a seminary, but also just to mind ourselves like, okay, it can't, the seminary can't do everything or our training ground can't do everything. A mentor can't do everything. But to think about the gaps that need to be closed, hopefully, as we've talked about some of the gaps that we are trying to close for ourselves, some of y'all out there might be able to gain some clarity about how to close those gaps in your context with your ministry demands and your own particular story. And so I'm walking away with not only a sense of uh, not aloneness, <laughs> yeah. um, but also with the sense of like, you know what? We can, by God's grace, close those gaps. We should continue to cheer on our seminaries and continue to cheer on those who are training others for ministry, get behind that, not put one above the other because they all have different strengths and weaknesses. And at the end of the day, we're all just failing forward in our attempts to extend God's mission, to share the hope of the gospel with people and to see them come to glorify the Lord in their lives. That's good. That's awesome. That's good. Duke, how about you? What's your takeaway? You know, I'm thinking right now about, do I need a mentor? Oh, <laughs> you know, yeah, like yeah. we were I'll talking about training. You, yeah, I know you have to be every day, every day. In the but ways I can only disciple you in how to cook barbecue. That's it. That's all I got. <laughs> no, I mean, like, you know, we're talking about training in sort of in the past tense, but like we've been talking about, we need to presume that we're always on that training journey, right? Mm-hmm. We got things to learn and that sort of thing. And I'm like, man, do I need to be more intentional about getting an older saint that I'm expecting? Like, and not just like, hey, let's, you know, hi, let's just hang or, but something a little bit more, not formal, but more explicit, right? Something where I'm like, actually, again, I don't, submitting myself to somebody, I mean, like, can you, can you show me the way, right? Can, can I learn from you? Something like that. And then adding that cross-cultural dimension to it, someone from a, a different station in life, different yeah. cultural background yes. than, than my own, right? Yes. Whatever that might be. I'm telling you, you know. I've had and drawn immense value from, I had a coach slash spiritual director and she was amazing. So mm. helpful, gave me such good guidance and her training and expertise, it was, it, it, it would lay outside of my own. And so there was this really helpful kind of pollination and she got ministry. Right. And yeah. so she just spoke so helpfully into my situation, into my life and gave me some really sound counsel and life-giving stuff. Like change shifted, not just my view of the ministry, but of myself and in my relationship to that ministry. That's great. Real good. Yeah. Well, this has all been rich. I'm with you on the generational and cultural mentoring. And And what gets challenging to the older you get, you can sort of uh, exempt yourself from that, mm, uh, right. which isn't mm. which isn't a good idea. Mm-hmm. But uh, great question, Russ. Thanks, great man. time together. Thanks for your thoughts. Yeah, we've loved just being together, and love for you to let us know what you're thinking, how you feel. We'd love to uh, have you leave a review 
like us, follow us, whatever it would be. Is it like us? Like us? Like, like us? Like, like I mean, we like, want people like, to like us. But yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> whatever it would be. But uh, thank you for listening to mm-hmm. Till We Feast. Until next time, go in peace. <laughs> Amen. Let the church say, Amen.